The economic weapon, the rise of sanctions as a tool of modern war, is a leading candidate for best China talk book of 2023. Really good international history books are just incredibly rare. There's something really special about books that take a period of history you think you know and give you another layer um, or tool to understand dynamics that once you sort of apply it to your mental model of the time period in question unlocks a lot of dynamics for you and makes things that never sat right fit together uh, analytically. And that's exactly what Nick Mulder's first book, The Economic Weapon, did for me about uh, sort of international sanctions and the first half of the 20th century. Nick is a professor at Cornell and co-hosting with me today is Lars Schonander, a policy technologist. Welcome to China Talk, YouTube. So Nick, what's so weird about the interwar years and why is it so hard today to put our heads in the minds of the actors of that period? Well, it's a bit deceptive because it's less than a century ago. And in many ways, the interwar world has a lot of recognizable features. It has relatively modern technology. It's very globalized. And people have a narrative about deglobalization beginning after the First World War. But as I try to show in the book, there was still, in many ways, a ton of globalization going on. In fact, I would say that the 20s and 30s were really more globalized than the world before World War I. There was a huge recovery of trade and interdependence in the 20s. So that feels very current uh, for us right now. It, it, it's recognizable. But then there are all these other features that are really distinctly different. Uh, to name just one, most of the most powerful countries in that period were empires, not nation states. Uh, Self-determination for most people who were not whites uh, not European or European descended was not to be taken for granted. Uh, and the grand strategy discussions are all about defending empire, not defending alliances of sovereign equal nation states. And on top of that, there's a whole number of other things that were very different, but uh, it looks close to us in many ways. But then when you actually start to get into the mindset of people, you realize they were also still very much thinking in terms of different races uh, hierarchies of, of states, uh, some countries having much many more rights than others. So those things are very confusing. So we can definitely learn a lot from it, but we, we also need to really understand how it's distinctive and strange. Yeah. So your book and the deluge by Adam Tooze, I both had to like read twice. Cause I was like, what this guy's doing this, why? And sort of like putting all the pieces together because of that 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 sort of tension between familiarity, the guys seem normal. When you read them writing English, it's not like, you know, like founders English where there's commas and like Fs where S's should be and whatnot. It feels very contemporary. But yeah, I mean, they have civilized and barbarian nations. They own all these territories around the world. Um, fascism is a thing which you got to sort of like wrap your head around. Yeah, people who genuinely believe in communism also, right? So huge ideological stakes for transforming the world. Also in a way that today we talk about competition, but the US-China competition is not about a, a big ideological system in that way, uh, overtaking the world. It's about different stuff. So all of that, you have to really get into a different mindset. Yeah. So pre-World War One, sanctions weren't a thing. You have this great anecdote where you write that, to modern eyes, 19th century wars protected commerce and finance to a degree that is almost unbelievably generous. During the Crimean War between Britain and Russia, 
Her Majesty's Treasury continued to fulfill payment obligations to the Tsarist government on old loans. They're literally fighting each other while, like, paying the interest on their debt. Nick, how does that make sense? So there's two ways in which it was justified. Uh, in the 19th century, it was mainly in terms of liberalism and the advance of international law. And most people who lived in that period felt that increasingly there were two different spheres in the world. There was the world of sovereign states that were fighting each other, that those were public entities. And then there was the world of private individuals. And private individuals could engage in contracts with each other, own property, transfer, exchange it. But the spheres had to be kept apart. So the idea, according to people who followed particularly civil law systems, Napoleonic, European continental systems, was that these were just two totally different worlds. And it was even nonsensical for a state to designate private individuals from other countries as an enemy. A state could only have other states as enemy, but not individuals. So the world of property in, private, in the private sphere and the world of war and statecraft and sovereignty in the public sphere, they saw as totally different. And to make those two spheres connected, they saw as something uncivilized. That would be a breakdown of an advance that they had fought very hard for. So that's one way. And then the other way is a much older way. Uh, and uh, I'm Dutch myself. And one of the striking things is that the Netherlands fought an 80-year-long war against the Spanish Empire to become independent. And throughout that entire war, Dutch traders were selling weapons and other things to the Spanish Empire that they were trying to secede from. And the Dutch defended this too, and they called it the trade with the enemy, the handel op den vijand. And to them, it was clearly beneficial for them. Uh, their independent struggle needed one thing above all, which was money. And however they made the money was secondary. If you're a small state, you couldn't choose the ways that you, in their eyes, uh, were forced to make money or anything that brought in money was necessary. So to them, um, if the Spaniards wanted to you know, basically bleed gold and bleed bullion with which they were ultimately going to be defeated, that was up to them. So there were all sorts of mindsets before the early 20th century that could justify trade in, in the presence of war uh, with the enemy, actually. And then we get to World War One. How does how do those sort of assumptions start to break down? Yes, uh, well, World War One is the thing that I think ends this world of liberal separationism between war and and the private economy. And one of the main ways that it does so is that the Allies launch this huge and unprecedented economic blockade against Central Europe, Germany, and Austria Hungary, and they realize that. Germany particularly is a very strong industrial export power. So in order to undermine German strength, it's necessary to make sure that they can't access world markets and they can't sell into world markets either. And this becomes the goal of the blockade. And it's that experience of building a blockade in what at that point is the most interdependent economy that the world has ever seen that inspires this idea that maybe if we hang on to some of these policies after the war, we can use them in order to put pressure on countries and avoid having to go into a terrible world war altogether. Yeah. So let's stay on the sort of dynamics of how sanctions worked in World War One in the first place. What were the tensions inherent in the British policy? What different things were they trying to optimize for? And what did they end up landing on? And how effective was it in the end? Yeah. So this system that we were just talking about in the 19th century, where war and commerce are separate, Many in Britain never liked that system. So Britain is actually kind of the outlier. Whenever Britain went to war in the 18th and 19th century, it always tried to wage war on the enemy's commerce as well. 
And there's even British judges who say things like, there cannot be a war of arms and a piece of commerce. You have to just be at war across the board. So they never liked this separationist system. And in 1914, they actually have plans to do a crippling lightning strike on the German economy, particularly through the city of London. So a kind of financial sanctions offensive, not unlike what we saw with Russia actually in the spring, uh, but even more severe. And ultimately that plan runs aground because of resistance from British commercial interests. So companies and banks just don't want to do it. But moreover, the United States would have also been really crippled by it. So it's also pressure from British allies. And those are actually really the key obstacles in the first two years of the blockade in World War I on British economic warfare. Their own private economy is not prepared for it because they had been expecting you know, a world of ever-increasing globalization. And their allies also want to remain neutral, many of them. Uh, the United States, which Britain becomes increasingly dependent on, is a neutral but many of their allies are not willing to impose uh, similar measures, also because they feel that the Brits are going to use it to then have a dominant position in the world market after the war ends. So they see it as a surreptitious way for the Brits to do economic competition in wartime so that they end up in a better spot after the war. Um, and it's only after about 1916 that the Brits and the French together managed to break that resistance. So Jeff, continue on that. What was... Considering they were spinning up this type of infrastructure for the very first time and they lacked the technology to, for example, track how companies operated on a daily basis, what was the sort of guts of how the British Empire actually enacted sanctions with one of the examples in your book being trying to prevent natural resources from Brazil entering Germany? Yeah, so the first issue is knowledge. It's actually a problem of epistemology. You have to find a way to make this trade that the private sector has created in all sorts of hyper-complex ways. It's in that sense grown organically visible to policymakers. And that's yeah. actually one of the most interesting things. And I loved doing the research of this part of the book, uh, going through the archives of these ministries of blockade, because you can see them discovering the world economy that has emerged uh, up to 1914 in real time. Let's do a little detour into manganese. How did that get traded before World War I? And yeah, what was the research process? This was such a little like tour de force, like a little two-page tour de force in there. Uh, yeah, so the manganese is fascinating because it's one of these, I guess, early 20th century rare earths, you could kind of call it. Um, it's an alloy that you add to iron ore to produce high-grade stainless steel because it helps to deoxidize uh, steel. Uh, so make it makes it much stronger. And people be using manganese in small quantities from the 1860s onwards. It's really a, a, a process of the second industrial revolution. But um, it is uh, only found in a few spots around the world. So you find some in Latin America and Brazil. There's some in Russia, uh, mainly actually in Georgia, which is also important. And then there's some on the western coast of India. And that's kind of it. There's some very small deposits here and there. But those are the three main producers. And what you could see in the archives were these blockade officials going out and talking to people in industry and figuring out, okay, so how vital is this material? And it turns out manganese, you can do without it, but you produce very bad quality steel. So your military equipment just degrades very quickly. And if you have it, then it really helps. And you also need very small quantities of it. So this was something where the blockaders thought, if we can find 
the manganese that is entering Central Europe. And Brazil was a neutral country for the first three years of the war. So that's where their attention focused. Maybe we can find a way of making sure that, you know, German war production just lacks this really important alloy. And that will help degrade the quality of their military equipment. It's kind of very much like, you know, the, the arguments you hear about microchips and Russian military equipment now in the war in Ukraine. And, and sort of another really interesting dynamic is just how globalized that supply chain was. You write that a single import of raw materials from Brazil to the Ruhr could easily involve seven parties in six countries other than the final buyers and the mining firm, which is just a sort of incredible thing that really you know took home, I think, your point about just how globalized this world was 100 years ago. Yeah, absolutely. And we sometimes think that Supply chain complexity is something uh, that we have only seen in the present last 30, 40 years. But if you actually dig deep into the weeds, uh, and I actually didn't even go into many corporate archives, just a few when there was back and forth between the bureaucracy and the corporations or banks, for example, I could find traces of what they were doing internally. But you could write an entire history of sanctions in the early 20th century from the point of view of the companies doing the trading. And they're fascinating. And they are, at that moment, arguably even stronger than many governments. So it takes quite a while, a few years into the war, before the governments actually find the laws, they find the power to put the thumbscrews on some of these companies, which before then were super powerful and very influential in, in government decision-making too. Quick little follow-up on this. Were there concerns, much like today, about blowback from enacting these sanctions? Were there discussions of like the 20th century of interdependence of if we cut up their magnesium supplies, we'll cut, they'll cut up our magnesium supplies? Or was it more of a similar dynamic today with the British Empire taking the place of the United States that was so overwhelming that there was sort of an unfair balance between the sanctions the United Kingdom could, could enact on everybody else? It's a very specific dynamic because the fact that the U.S. is not in the war for the three years is very important. The U.S. at that point produces a ton of commodities and manufactured goods. It supplies most of the equipment for the French and British armies by 1916 also in the field. So it's hugely important for all the belligerents, but Germany also gets to import from the United States. And this is what ultimately causes this tension. Um, if you also look at finance, for example, money, that tends to go through the small financial centers, so the Netherlands, Switzerland. And the management of the blockade at that time is really about managing neutrals. So I would say it's it's about uh, not so much blowback as pinning countries down diplomatically and making sure that they really do what you want them to do. But because they're neutral, they still have their options open. And so that involves a, a carrot and stick game, essentially. And ultimately, the Allies have a stronger hand because they have way more carrots to offer. Uh, they also do, however, have a much stronger stick in the form of the blockade. And it's interesting to see in some cases, they they really front load the, the carrot. They really try and make it clear, you know, you could just earn way more money. Germany is almost out of money. Why would you sell stuff to them? Uh, they're going to collapse, you know, buy from us, do business with us. In other cases, for example, with the Dutch, they really start to put the screws on and uh, reduce what the Dutch can import simply so that they don't transship it into Germany. Uh, let's talk about the sort of ultimate impact of this campaign. How much impact by the war's end were these sanctions ultimately playing in the final decision making from Germany to end the war? Yeah, that's a really important question and actually something that is 
not as much discussed as it should be, partially because we lack a lot of the good data and records. So one of the really sad things is that in World War II, Allied bombing destroyed a lot of the economic ministry archives of the German Reich uh, about the last stages of World War I. So it's kind of a, a, a black hole for us, bureaucratically. And what you can figure out, though, is what the soldiers were thinking and what was happening on the home front. And it gets pretty complex, but I would just summarize it in the following way, that um, the blockade puts a lot of pressure on Germany, but Germany is not as vulnerable as Britain is, for example, to blockade. And a lot of the blockade strategy is actually almost projecting Britain's own vulnerabilities because it got two-thirds of its food from overseas onto Germany. But Germany was much more self-sufficient in terms of food. And what happened when the blockade was imposed is that, indeed, Germany lost access to a lot of overseas imports. It had to find substitutes. So one of the stories that you probably know is how they invented a synthetic nitrogen fixation, right? A huge breakthrough for global agriculture, uh, the Haber-Bosch uh, process for fixing nitrogen. But one of the other things that it did was actually shut down their export industries. So their export industries could no longer sell abroad. And that releases a lot of labor and a lot of inputs and a lot of industrial plants for uh, use uh, for war manufacturing. So the irony is that actually by targeting German imports, Germany was able to construct a more successful war economy than if there had been no blockade. If you think about that counterfactual, then there would have been a super hard trade-off for them between putting all your scarce labor into export industry or putting it into war industry. And I think they would have faced that constraint much uh, more quickly. Yeah. And like the sort of political economy changes if it's still possible to make money versus if it isn't, then, you know, what whatever sort of like interest groups that would be lobbying you to keep making, you know, nice furniture or whatever um, are not able to do that because they have no incentive to do anything besides make, you know, bullets and hoe land for wheat or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. My favorite example here is the Augsburg, which is one of these old central German cities that was known for centuries for its pencil making. And the pencil makers can no longer sell their pencils abroad. So they become gunsmiths who make, uh, you know, a, um, rifled gun and artillery barrels. But depending on sort of how much money the, the German government has at its disposal, it might have been easier. You, you might have been able to make more money selling pencils. But because that wasn't an option then the switch towards a wartime footing was, was, uh, was probably much more straightforward. Exactly. So, so basically, the effect of the blockade is that it makes that choice about where to allocate your scarce labor supply for the Germans. Yeah. And as a result, the problem that emerges towards the end of the war is a labor shortage. It's not because of anything that the blockade really deprives Germany of. It's because ultimately they, they have to prioritize putting people in the field to harvest crops and putting them uh, in in the on the battlefield in order to fight, and that becomes the core source of the breakdown of morale that leads to military collapse in 1918. Yeah, can you talk a little bit about the sort of psychological impact of sanctions? I think there's a um, a really interesting dynamic that you point to both in the World War One and sort of 30s context of like once you're sanctioned you react not necessarily the way that um, the person sanctioning you hopes you hopes you would. Yes, uh, the possibility that sanctions would backfire in that sense, people did understand that already early on. Actually, one of the first people to warn about it was Norman Angel, who is both a great prophet of interdependence and someone who said, you know, interdependence can be a force for peace. 
after the war breaks out and invalidates that uh, possibility, he then very quickly becomes an advocate of international blockade. So he writes this book in 1915 called The World's Highway, kind of a powerful metaphor, I think, also for us today. Mm. But he, in that, already warns that one possible blowback effect could be that if you start to make access to the world economy conditional on playing by the rules set by one country that's hegemonic, then other countries might choose to pursue self-sufficiency instead because they want to make their own rules or they don't want to accept those rules. And so he says that the risk might be that you end up in this competition for self-sufficingness is what he calls it. Uh, and that actually then uh, buttresses nationalism and it feeds into what caused the war. And people at the time were definitely alive to that. And in Central Europe, the experience of blockade, it didn't cause uh, an absolute mass famine, but there was serious starvation and there were many people who died of disease, weakened health. And, you know, there's now still a debate among historians. The high estimates are definitely not credible, but at a minimum, we're talking about about 300,000 people over the four years of the war, which makes blockade, by the way, the single uh, deadliest uh, anti-civilian weapon of the early 20th century. So there's no strategic bombing yet, like four engine bombers, like you have them in World War II. So they don't target civilians. Um, there's a low thousands casualty count for bombing. Uh, there's definitely chemical weapons, which are scary, but they target mainly soldiers. So it's starvation by blockade that's the main way for civilians to die. And as a result, this is an incredibly scary thing. And um, that's one of the things that, that we need to also get back into the mindset of the interwar uh, people to understand, right? We don't think of that as scary anymore because we know about nuclear warfare. We know about bombing. We know about Auschwitz. <laughs> Stuff has gotten so much worse since then. But for many people in World War One. Being blockaded in an interdependent world and starving to death was the main uh, way that they as civilians would be affected by war. Yeah. Um, let's stay on that for a second. Ottoman Empire, Syria, how does that play out? <clears throat> There's an interesting question whether sanctions in this period or blockade are more damaging to a very advanced industrial economy like Germany or to uh, a simpler, more... Uh, you know, developing economy or even uh, yeah, a mainly agrarian economy like the Ottoman Empire. And you might think that the agrarian economy is stronger because it has more people make, you know, focused on, on uh, producing food. It's more self-sufficient. But the interesting thing seems to be that actually economic complexity is helpful when you're facing an economic siege because it provides for inputs that are substitutable and fungible and mm. components. And the Ottoman Empire doesn't have much of that. And so in the Ottoman Empire, when they start to conscript soldiers for their army, they're directly taking away people who are working the land. And they don't have nitrogen fixation like the Germans to make artificial fertilizer. So for them, it's really crippling. And then the Ottoman Empire is a large multi-ethnic empire. So they mainly draw away resources and also animals from the Arab areas in the Middle East. And that's where the famine is worst. Uh, and then when you put blockade on it, it's just a, a recipe for mass death. So maybe half a million people die in the blockaded areas of, uh, of greater Syria uh, as a result of this. So it's an interaction between the weaknesses of the economy and the pressure put on it by blockade. How much would you say sort of bias against the Ottoman Empire played into this, that given they were seen as not a modernized power, did the Entente to simply care less about the consequences of sanctions on the Ottomans than it did on the rest of the central powers? 
I, definitely. The other issue is, of course, also that the Ottoman Empire totally disintegrates, unlike Germany. So the people who had suffered most were now actually part of the French and British colonial empire because Syria and Iraq get divided up by, uh, the, by, by Britain and France. So the people who were the victims of this didn't end up having an independent state to make their case in the interwar period. That's part of the story. And in Germany, you do have the people who had been hungry still in charge of, uh, of, the, of the Weimar Republic or living in the Weimar Republic. So that's part of it. Uh, and the other bit is that they were able to enforce it much more strictly, mainly because the Ottomans didn't really have uh, as strong a navy uh, that they could threaten uh, the blockaders with, like Germany did. Uh, they also didn't have uh, many submarines or mines, so that allowed a much closer, tighter blockade, uh, much closer to the shore, which means it's much more difficult to evade. Uh, in the North Sea, Germany benefits from the fact that it has U-boats and it has a big battle fleet, so the, the Royal Navy needs to basically take a much more cautious approach to blockading Germany, and they blockaded from a much greater distance, which means much more, many more ships can slip through. Yeah. World War One ends in the debate around the creation of the League of Nations. In the you know first years after World War One, how did the actors view the impact that sanctions had, and how did that play into how they were thinking about setting up the League to um uh, you know create a better world? One of the ironies is that. I think if we look at it now, we can see that blockade was helpful in winning World War I, but it was by no means a decisive factor, and its impact has probably been overrated. But the reasons why it's overrated are interesting, because World War I, for most people in the West, was a war in which millions of young men were sent to a pretty senseless death in the trenches. That was one of the reasons why blockade was chosen as an instrument that had less of a kind of negative association. It seemed like maybe if we, if the West would use that in the future to fight its wars, it would not have to waste so much manpower. And as a result, particularly the British start to make this argument in the interwar period that it's blockade that's been decisive. And the other important part is that the minister who runs the blockade, Robert Cecil, is the British negotiator who crafts the League of Nations uh, during the Paris Peace Treaty negotiations in 1919. So you have two things. The British elite has a total consensus on blockade being the instrument that was ultimately decisive because they can't really point to any military breakthrough in the field. That's one thing. The other thing is that the actual economic warriors of World War I are the people designing the international institutions and then staffing the international institutions like the League of Nations. And that gives you a very different view of what the League of Nations was about because we have this account that it was weak, a talking shop, a paper tiger. It didn't mean much. It was just a bunch of people getting together in Geneva, whining and dining, but not doing much of consequence and definitely super naive about realpolitik, hard power. But if you actually look at the bureaucrats running the economic organs of the League and some of the staffers, they were people who had experience in this very new and radical form of economic warfare. So okay. I would, that's the starting point for the book's account of the League of Nations. Yeah. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month, So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Yeah, no, it's a, it's a interesting. You mentioned the atomic bomb earlier, and the the sort of thing that occurred to me when reading that chapter is is the parallels there actually from a sort of like, you know, the U.S. We use this weapon. It's awful. We kill all these civilians. But the way you know the people at the time justified it to themselves is, look, we're saving lives. We're ending the war earlier. You have to imagine that the people in London understood that hundreds of thousands of people were dying based on the decisions they made around around blockade, but you know, what can help them sleep at night is the idea that, in fact, this thing, you know, really helped end the war and sort of, you know, bring the world to a better place. So them sort of seeing it as this new fire, as this incredibly uh, sort of powerful weapon makes a lot of sense from a roundabout psychological way. I don't know, Nick, am I, am I crazy on this one? No, absolutely. And it's attractive for a number of ways because the people running it are civilians, not military officials, right? They're bureaucrats, technocrats, people who are used to doing other sorts of policy and real desk warriors in a way. But it's powerful because within the British state and within the French state too, it gives these civilian bureaucrats major arguments to say that it is uh, their instruments and their policies that should be prioritized in the interwar period. And that's attractive because Britain, right, first starts World War I with a volunteer army, a professional army, and then halfway through the war is forced to introduce conscription, which is extremely unpopular. So it is very, very intent on demobilizing and getting people back into the civilian workforce as soon as possible. Uh, same for France. They don't want to maintain huge standing armies in the interwar period. So blockade then becomes an extremely attractive tool that you can use at a distance. It's the bureaucrats you already have in your government. And you don't need to use soldiers. You simply need to have the right bureaucratic and administrative levers. And then you can exert power that is the same as huge armies, essentially. So what's interesting also is that in the in the early post-war years, it's not just governments. It's also labor that starts doing these boycotts. Can you tell the story of the uh, Soviet Union-Poland fight and how, uh, you know, dock workers potentially played a decisive role and how that ended up playing out? Yes, so the... That's very fascinating. And it's also, not, like you said, not just a story in this period about bureaucrats. The bureaucrats want it to be just about them. But the other thing that, of course, the war does is by putting so many people into war industry, it gives enormous power to organized labor, particularly in high-tech manufacturing industries. And as a result, in every country, right, Italy, France, Russia, uh, but even in Britain uh, and the United States, right, there's a huge strike wave after the end of World War One. In all those countries, factory workers, factory councils, Soviet politics, uh, council communism becomes possible or thinkable at least. And um, that means that elites are now confronted with this challenge because what if organized labor decides that they want to create political organizations and just shut down industries or shut down exports to a certain place? Just we're not going to treat these materials going to that country or we're not as dock workers going to load ships with weapons. Uh, that are directed against the Soviet Union. That's what, for example, the British dock workers decide in 1920. And uh, it's also used in Weimar Germany. One of the early threats to the Weimar government is this right-wing military coup in 1920, the, the Kapp Ludwitz Putsch. And that's actually shut down with the, the biggest general strike in history up to that point. Just 3 million Germans, postal workers, telegraph workers, just walking off the job because the Social Democrats and the labor unions order them to. And it's extremely powerful because how are you going to run a military dictatorship if you don't even have telephone operators uh, to relay orders from the Chelsea Street to the barracks, right? So 
potentially there's a kind of bottom-up economic weapon if you can organize the workers in each industry and it's a huge moment of labor mobilization and ultimately uh, by 1922-23 that uh, labor agitation and that that labor power is definitely contained and kind of hemmed in by an organized um, uh, offensive uh, by by many governments uh, and also by the recession of 1920-21 so that's what the deluge right to spoke is great on um, but yeah, it's a very interesting moment to think about what would have happened if it had been workers and not governments who had started to organize this power uh, kind of, you know, bottom up blockade, essentially. Uh, what was Wilson's deal? Why did he think sort of moral sanctions were going to be what would win the day? Did he like not have friends as a kid and just like really wanted, you know, like like just like thought this was more important for him? I don't know why he overweights this sort of thing so much. Uh, it's interesting. I mean, I, I also still find Wilson a very puzzling figure. Uh, and, you know, people have said all sorts of things about growing up in the South after the Civil War and that that's what shapes a lot of his views. I think he resists entering World War One for a long time. But what you can really see reading his papers and his communication with other heads of state is a, a big switch around the moment when he does decide to go to war. And it, it really changes something about him. From then on, he is entering the war with uh, an objective to spread and impose peace on all the parties. And also, he actually outlines this very strongly moral and political agenda for what countries need to do to get out of the blockade, so to have the blockade lifted, which he says is actually no longer an automatic thing if there's a peace treaty. And this is also a, a big change from the 18th, 19th century, right? Blockade is a wartime instrument. You can impose it when you go to war, but when the war ends, you have to lift it. And what happens after World War I is actually that the Allies keep the blockade against Germany going for a, a, quite a while longer. They keep a blockade against Soviet Russia going because they don't recognize the Soviet government as legitimate. Yeah. So they use that sort of gray area to keep it going. They use it against uh, Hungary when there's a Soviet uprising there. So they start to play around with the boundaries of war and peace. And Wilson is the first one to say, you know what, I don't really feel like lifting the blockade against Germany unless they overthrow the Kaiser, unless Germany goes from being a militaristic empire to a democracy or a republic. I don't really want to admit them into the global economy. And that becomes, in a way, also, I think it's the first time that someone consciously articulates what you might call a regime change goal for economic pressure, saying this government needs to change its internal constitution and political character in order to have this economic containment lifted. Just to dive into that a bit more, would you say this is the sort of origin story to one of the problems with sanctions that we see today, that they're way easier to enact on the spot, but actually unwinding them is a far more logistically complicated process than just enacting them in the first place? Yes, uh, that's a very important point. There's a real path dependence. And like you were both already saying, a real political economy to sanctions. Once you impose them, interests form around the sanctions regime that you've just created. And lifting it becomes a complicated political thing where oftentimes the groups that have an interest in maintaining it can be for strategic, but often for just commercial reasons, start to put pressure to, to, to keep it there. And in 1918, 1919, you could already see this because uh, the chemical industry in the United States and the pharmaceutical industry, they have the German pharmaceutical and chemical industry, which is the leading 
in, uh, in the world uh, in the early 20th century. It's absolutely world-class. The Americans are still, uh, they're, they're good, but they're a little behind the Germans. But what they now have is this wartime law, the Trading with the Enemy Act, that's confiscated all the patents that German companies had in their U.S. subsidiaries, including for really important stuff like aspirin, like Bayer uh, loses its aspirin patent. And DuPont Chemical, American Pharmaceutical Corporation. It's like sit. telecom stuff too, right? There are all these like... Exactly. So so there's Marconi, there's all these radio and telecom stuff. So actually, it's kind of interesting, right? Talking about stealing IP, uh, economic war can give you a way to take patents and crucial IP and then just lift yourself one leg up in, in technological competition against an adversary. And the people who studied this, Catherine Steen has a, a great book on the U.S. chemical industry in the interwar period that's basically all about its competition and uh, confiscation of German technology. And it's very clear that without uh, World War I uh, and, and the economic war that it involved, the U.S. pharmaceutical and chemical industry would never have achieved the position it ended up having by the 30s and 40s. Uh, they really managed to use it to, to leap ahead massively. But then if you look at other interests in the U.S., there are plenty of American commercial interests that want to, of course, restart trade with Germany as soon as possible. So manufacturing, shipping trades, uh, seamen, etc., unions, they're very much in favor of lifting the blockade as soon as possible. So there's a very complex landscape between you know, the more inward-focused American nationalist industries and the more American internationalist industries. So, so you have a point, I think this was in the 1920s, where the U.S. Chamber of Commerce proposes just like strengthening boycott power to wipe out Junkerism without a trace. Um, and, you know, on one side, you have the American chemical uh, and pharmaceutical companies who just have all these cool patents and want to sell drugs without any problem. But the National Association of Manufacturers called the boycott idea, quote, not only futile, but vicious. And the International Siemens Union of America, also for obvious reasons, rejected it. So... You know, the, the sorts of like who wins, who loses when you have uh, uh, big sanctions debates um, with with major powers is something that I think will be with us forever. Absolutely. Yeah. I want to come to the 1920s and this idea of positive sanctions where, uh, you know, the, the whole uh, NATO for trade idea, I guess, uh, has its um, uh, intellectual origins. So what was the idea of sort of pairing support with the aggrieved party with sanctions on the aggressor? And why did it not seem to get a lot of traction in the 1920s when you did have, you know, all this stuff like the Kellogg-Briand Pact and this this whole sort of like global motivation, it seemed, to try to, you know, give the League of Nations a second shot and put more put more juice into the initial formulation of the international organization. Yes. So the blockade was one part of the economic governance that went on during World War I. But there was another area where a huge amount of international institution building took place, and that was in organizing the logistics. And some of the most important people, like Jean Monnet, the, one of the founders of the European Union, uh, later on in the 20th century, uh, is running uh, the Allied Maritime uh, Shipping Council together with Arthur Salter, who's a Brit who then becomes the head of the League of Nations economic section. So all of these international bureaucrats cut their teeth on the challenge of organizing shipping uh, space, right? Getting all the tonnage there, which is super important when you have German U-boats sinking 500 to 600,000 tons every month, right? Uh, it's about producing, but it's also about finding the neutral countries that are still willing to trade. So Norway, for example, um, uh, becomes very important, uh, but Dutch ships as well all over the world. 
And managing those resources, making sure that the grain harvest from Australia arrives in Britain in time in a convoyed uh, setting, um, and also the war finance, so the American loans from Wall Street reach the British Treasury before it runs out of money. All of that uh, is an experience that these people carry into the League of Nations as well. So the idea that you then get uh, is that mainly small countries, uh, and Finland is key in this, Poland also plays a role, uh, and probably the other biggest advocate of this sort of positive economic weapon, as they start to call it, is France. And the French like this, of course, because they are one of the weaker uh, allies financially. They're stronger than Italy, but they're weaker than Britain and the United States. And so the French also have another burden to carry, which is they have a whole bunch of Eastern European newly independent countries in the 1920s to support as their allies, the so-called Little Entente. And France takes it upon itself to start campaigning for a kind of positive support logistical apparatus. The first time they put it forward is in the early 20s during uh, the attempt to pass this new treaty called the Geneva Protocol in 24. And what they essentially want to do is as soon as there's a, an aggressor that is designated, a, a new war breaks out, the aggressor gets League of Nations sanctions imposed against it. And the victim gets this huge lump of money and logistical support from all the members of the League and that there will be a kind of permanent bureaucracy to organize the food supply, uh, the weapons, the finance flowing into that country, so that all this expertise at doing war logistics and war finance will be preserved, uh, but in order to aid the victim from the get-go uh, and to make sure that the, the, common, the common front against aggression is as strong as it could be. Um, and so that's the initial plan. And then it's actually turned into a convention in the late 20s called the Convention for Financial Assistance. Keynes is a huge proponent. You won't be surprised, right? The guy who is all about economic stimulus uh, and himself had been doing war finance in World War I. So John Maynard Keynes is a massive proponent, but there's quite a lot of uh, financiers, private bankers in the city of London who think this is a great idea because for them, uh, it's still much better for their business to lend a bunch of money to a poor Eastern European country that's being invaded than to go through the entire experience of mobilizing the British economy for war with all of its controls and interventions again. So to them, sending money is always a better choice than accepting a full-blown war economy. And that's that explains why the private sector, and particularly the city of London, is quite keen on it. But there, ultimately, the problem that it runs into is that most of the governments, the civilian governments, the people in the ministries of finance in the late 20s and early 30s are still very much in the grips of this balancing the budget mindset. They're austerians. They want to make sure that the size of government economically is trimmed down and putting your, your cards down for an essentially unlimited support uh, facility uh, for small countries that might be activated at any moment when a war breaks out in Eastern Europe, which they think could be any moment. That to them seems to just be a recipe for uh, becoming insolvent very quickly and being on the hook for other countries' defense in a way that they don't want. So it's ultimately the, the kind of financial and fiscal orthodoxy of the, of the period that ends up destroying this idea of a positive economic weapon. And I would describe it, Jordan, you said a, a NATO for trade. I would actually describe it slightly differently as a sort of IMF uh, for geopolitical crises. Because uh, it's really, it doesn't matter what sort of country you are. You don't have to be a democracy. You don't have to uh, be like Britain and France. You can be, you know, uh, Romania, a, a pretty nasty uh, anti-Semitic monarchy. But if Soviet 
if the Soviet Union invades you, you're going to, as a League of Nations member, get all this support. Um, so I would say it's kind of politically and ideologically blind. Um, it's a, it's an IMF for, for geopolitical crises. Yeah. Interesting. I was Googling around about this on JSTOR and found a speech from December 1930 from someone talking at the Chatham House saying that the Convention on Financial Assistance was, quote, a ridiculous convention for the financing of other people's wars, which, you know, tough sell <laughs> during the Great Depression, right? It is a sort of dynamic that ends up really biting the proponents of the sort of League of Nations-backed international uh, structure in the back when we get to the Italy-Ethiopia war, which we will come to in a second, because I also want to ask about this sort of ideological debate around food and whether or not foodstuffs should be something that is okay to ban another country from receiving. It's It was really interesting because like you had Hoover, who did the Belgian relief after World War One, and you know, he's just like this engineer. He's very American. Like he just wants to do good and like have common sense solutions or whatever. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. you know, he he tries to propose to France and the UK, like may maybe it's a bad thing for us to um you know starve people. And he gets a, a pretty uh a, a rude awakening from his allies. So what was the what was the dynamic there? Uh, so the U.S. Uh, is a neutral country for much of World War One, and there are people like Hoover who participate in the war alongside Wilson, but very quickly use it as a, a jumping off point for their own careers. And I do think Hoover is probably one of the most underrated and interesting early 20th century American figures. Definitely as a president, right, uh, has a, a, a reputation, uh, rightly, for uh, presiding over a huge economic catastrophe. But everything he was doing up to then probably made him the most important American internationalist of that period. Exactly, self-made millionaire, uh, has lots of technical know-how, uh, has lived abroad for a long time, has friends in every single continent, you know, in China, in Finland, in Australia. Um, he's much less parochial than most of the sort of WASP elite. He's this freewheeling Quaker uh, science guy, you know. <laughs> um, and like you said, he is a huge hero in much of Europe. Um, he organizes the relief of Belgium, also the relief of Central Europe. So in Central Europe, in, in Austria and Hungary, he's a huge um, hero and uh, the famine relief even for the Soviet Union. So he has this pretty interesting idea that even though he is absolutely opposed as a conservative to communism, it's much better to feed people with radical ideologies because then you just sort of pacify them. You make sure that they see politics is a less existential matter. You kind of calm their tempers and then ultimately you just show that Capitalism is just too great. There, why would you want to do anything that upsets your access to this great world of plenty and technology? And that's his, he's really self-confident and you're right, like kind of cocky and American about it, but it does work, right? He does do this relief pretty successfully and definitely a lot of people also believe in the Hoover hype. And at that moment, <laughs> he becomes uh, important in the late 20s once he becomes president. He's elected in 28. And the League of Nations at that point is deciding whether its sanctions should include food. And this has been a bone of contention throughout the 20s. Feminist organizations, for example, very interestingly, are very active in lobbying for an exemption, a carve-out in sanctions that would exempt food from being targeted with sanctions so that women and children can continue to have access to, to foodstuffs. But weren't there some like really hardcore feminist organizations that were on the other side of this too? I thought that was great. Exactly. I mean, you know, the, 
it's not as if feminist organizations were only humanitarian. There were also exactly, you know, uh, nationalist feminists or if you want total war feminists. Um, and actually, uh, Sylvia Pankhurst. So some of the Pankhurst family were, were very uh, much on this side of the argument. So they were even criticizing Cecil, the blockade minister, for going insufficiently far to destroy Germany in the war. So definitely the position on that part of the politics is as complex as anywhere else. The argument in favor of food sanctions is just any carve-out is going to weaken the impact of sanctions. Um, and the whole point of sanctions, according to the sanctionists, that's what they're called at the time. So I use the term a lot in the book because that was what people called them, and they called themselves that also. The sanctionists make this argument that if you want blockade to really preserve world peace or sanctions to preserve world peace as a peacetime form of blockade, you need them to be as total and unsparing as possible. Any carve-out is going to weaken their deterrent effect. It's going to make sure that the civilian economy can keep running. And therefore, the best kind of sanctions are total ones. Only if you threaten everyone with death by starvation will they actually have the sort of restraining effect on popular opinion. So they, they actually, you know, consistently, and I think you have to understand from their point of view, there is logic to this argument too, right? That they saw themselves as the real pacifists, but that in order, it's kind of escalate to de-escalate. You need to have the most inhumane measures in order to preserve peace. That's, of course, very familiar from kind of nuclear deterrence, uh, nuclear the strategy. But it's already an argument made in the 20s about why you should never have food carve-outs for sanctions. So um, let's talk about two of the sort of examples on the positive side of the ledger, um, Bulgaria and Greece, as well as um, this, uh, this war in Latin America. So how did sanctions play out in those two contexts and what impact did it have in preventing uh, escalation? Yes. So the, the original theory in the interwar period seems to be at the one of the sanctions, which is a deterrence theory. So you just threaten to use sanctions and then any country in its right mind is going to stop whatever aggressive thing it's doing in order to avoid being put under this crippling blockade. And it works for the first time in the fall of 1921, when Yugoslavia, in the kind of uncertain border adjustments uh, in the Balkans, tries to grab a bunch of Albania and actually put Albania under its influence. Lloyd George, who's the British prime minister still, goes out in front of the world press and says, we're going to put Yugoslavia under a blockade with an Article 16 sanctions procedure of the League. And very quickly, they uh, stop their armies and they negotiate uh, an effective settlement to the border issue between Albania and Yugoslavia. So that's success number one. Success number two is this war known as the War of the Stray Dog, one of the best interwar wars uh, for its name, but also <laughs> because it is another success uh, for the League of Nations as a peacekeeping organization. And... Um, it's very similar. There's a border skirmish that breaks out between Greece and Bulgaria in October of 1925. They start to mobilize their armies, and Greece is then under a pretty nasty military dictator, Pangalos. He tries to use this to unify the Greek society behind him and starts to really prepare for a big-time invasion of Bulgaria. Bulgaria seems weak because it was on the losing side of World War I. It has a very small army, so this seems ideal. And Greece has suffered this big defeat by being kicked out of um, the Ottoman Empire out of Asia Minor a few years before so is looking to restore its military prestige. And the League intervenes and says to Pangalos, if you go ahead with this invasion, we're going to put Athens under blockade. That had already happened in World War I also, when uh, Greece uh, suffered pretty severely from, from blockade. And then again, the Greeks back down. So success number two for the League. 
And these are kind of important, and uh, it's important to give the League of Nations credit for this because a lot of the IR-influenced diplomatic history of this period had just almost overlooked these cases because they saw sanctions as being only about use and imposition. And if you have this very realist understanding of sanctions, only when you use sanctions can you test if they work. But that actually wasn't at all the way that people in the interwar period thought about it. They thought the threat was enough. So you have to think about cases and look at cases where sanctions were threatened. And if that managed yeah. to escalate things, that's clearly a success for sanctions, right? And it's great because no people had to starve to death in order for peace to be preserved. So um, that's part of the way in which um, I think looking at sanctions in this period forces you to take the League of Nations more seriously and to give it credit, actually, for diffusing a bunch of diplomatic crises that could have escalated badly. Because oh, So let's remember, right, World War I starts with some stuff in the Balkans that no one pays attention to, and the next thing you know, it's the worst war that we, uh, the world's ever seen. So um, that's success number two. And then in the 30s, there's a, 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 the worst war of the 20th century in Latin America, the Chaco War that breaks out between Paraguay and Bolivia. And then there is an international arms embargo that ultimately also plays a role in making sure that these countries sue for peace and uh, they manage to constrain it. So um, that's a pretty significant thing. Also, the United States also joins in that because it's organized outside of the League, but the League as a forum for negotiation plays an important role. Um, yeah, so there's some real uh, successes of both actually using sanctions and threatening sanctions. What's the deal with IR scholars? I mean, that's not like an enormous leap that you made, right? Nick is like, yeah, we should think about the times that uh, sanctions were threatened. I like tried to write my college thesis 10 years ago about the sort of early history of sanctions. And the secondary literature was just so bad um, that I kind of gave up and did it on something else. Um, is this just not a topic that's gotten a lot of attention? Or why has thinking been so facile about um about this sort of stuff um i think mainly because in ir uh, there's not uh, an appreciation for what the worst possible thing to happen to your society was in the interwar period and this is before people had seen the effect of four engine strategic firebombing on cities or those sorts of things it was economic blockade because people were aware of their interdependence and they had seen in World War I, everyone had seen how the Allies, the Entente, had worked together to, in their eyes, right, even though we just talked about why it was actually more complicated, in their eyes, the Entente had starved the world's most uh, quickly rising, sophisticated industrial power, Germany, into submission. That was the lesson many people took from World War I. So even the most powerful country in the world can be brought to its knees with this instrument, let alone that a bunch of small Balkan countries that are under financial supervision and uh, have huge refugee problems um, are able to resist this. Obviously, they couldn't do it for very long. So that was the major experience. And it's a very distinctive interwar experience. And I, you know, yeah. I think you could really talk about it as the specter of blockade. It hangs yeah. over uh, everyone because the League of Nations makes it the prime instrument with which to preserve peace. The efforts to do major disarmament don't go anywhere. Uh, the United States and the Britain, the major hegemons, uh, reduced the size of their armies, but they also imposed treaties on Germany and other countries to reduce their armies. So military power is temporarily less relevant. And maybe also that we associate deterrence theory with nuclear weapons, but there are clear cases of anti-civilian weapons like blockade being used in this way. 
So I think we should expand deterrence theory and think about it much more broadly uh, in non-nuclear settings as well, pre-nuclear history. The specter of blockade, I think, is something that makes the sort of drive towards autarky, both from Japan and, and, and Nazi Germany, make a ton of sense. But the piece you argue that really clicks that into place is the most dramatic use of sanctions in the 1930s on Italy, which we're going to come to now. But um, no, we're going to do one more thing before it. So um, Italy almost fought a war with Germany over Austria. Well, <laughs> excuse me? Yes. Uh, so this is one of the things also that we have difficulty wrapping our heads around because, of course, we see World War II through the prism of the Axis. We just know who we won the war against, who were the bad guys, who were the fascists, who were united in the Axis. But that misses a whole part of the very complex diplomatic history of the 30s where it wasn't by any means clear that that was the way that this anti-liberal fascist alliance would uh, align. And both Japan and Italy could have gone quite differently there. I think it's important to really think counterfactually about what causes World War II to break out as it does. And in the case of Italy, one of the major reasons why Italy was not by any means an automatic partner for Germany was that Italy had fought on the side of the Entente in World War I. So there's already a very clear, less than two decades earlier, precedent for Italy being a liberal country, signing up on the side of the allies. And sure, Mussolini is a fascist, a radical nationalist, an empire builder, but he is also someone who has a very liberal financial policy. He is praised widely uh, by the economists uh, when he comes to power, but it, uh, there's very good work, right? Uh, Wall Street and American governments throughout the 20s and 30s see Mussolini as our guy in Italy because he's the one who keeps communism under control. Uh, he organizes Italy and he's the sort of, authoritarian leader that the West could do business with. So there's very much the expectation that if uh, it comes uh, to it, Italy will align with the West, hopefully. And if that isn't the case, then maybe we can arrange some sort of deal about colonial territory in Africa and just buy Italy off. So people do, I think, did see at the time that the main threat was Germany. And the, the key question, I think, that they were clear about and uh, that that you have to understand is how do you build an anti-German containment alliance? How do you prevent Germany from becoming what it was still the most latently powerful country in Europe? And Italy is a key part of that puzzle. Russia and the Soviet Union are also. And so that makes this very complex in the 30s. Will Mussolini, despite being a fascist, be our fascist? Um, and will the Soviet Union, which is anti-liberal, nonetheless be on the side of the liberal powers because it joins the League of Nations in 1934. That's another hugely important thing. And it actually has this foreign minister, Litvinov, who's very um, pro-Western and joins up with Britain and France and all sorts of initiatives. So potentially, right, we could just recreate the alliance that won World War I. You just have uh, Russia in the East, Italy in the South, and then Britain and France in the West. And you, there's no way that Germany would win that. So how come that we couldn't recreate that deterrent alliance in the 30s? That's, I think, the big question. I love this sort of like Soviet Union's like real eagerness to get into these wars they have nothing to do with and be like, yeah, we're on the side of like international peace and stability. Can you talk a little bit more, more about this? Who is this guy? And why do you think the Soviet Union showed so much verve in uh, some of these uh, sanctions efforts in the 30s? So it's probably a combination of things, but one of them is definitely that Stalin needs there to be international peace while he's transforming and collectivizing the Soviet Union. 
So he is rearming massively also. He's obviously not a peace-loving, trusting, <laughs> uh, idealist in IR terms. He is absolutely ready for capitalist betrayal and perfidy at any moment. The imperialist powers he's convinced will eventually conspire to crush Russia. But if he can have treaties to keep friendly relations with them while he tries to, you know, in his own words, do with Russia in 10 years what it took the West 150 years to do, namely industrialize and become a major industrial power with an army uh, that can resist them, then he'll take it. So as part of that, he switches the official strategy also of the communist parties in the 30s around supporting peace. The Popular Front strategy fits in with this, have these uh, tactical alliances with social democrat and socialist parties in the West, even though they're non-communist and kind of anti-Soviet. And um, he supports this and he enters the League of Nations. And the other major reason why that seems attractive is, of course, Russia does have a bunch of commodities. So it is a major oil producer. Um, it has lots of iron ore, manganese, all that stuff. Uh, grain from the Ukraine, uh, wood, uh, all sorts of materials. So if you get the Soviet Union into the league as a major resource control alliance, that too will strengthen sanctions. Back to Italy. So in sort of 1934-35, Mussolini gets really stressed at Hitler, thinking that he's going to do Anschluss, and, and uh, Mussolini's not super comfortable with um, uh, Nazi Germany expanding into Austria on, the, uh, on Italy's border. But that eventually gets resolved. And, um, you know, he decides that he wants some bites out of the African continent. You get this fascinating tension that you set up, I think, really well in the book of the League of Nations deciding whether they were going to turn a blind eye to what Italy was doing in Ethiopia in order to get them on the side of um, of what was seeming to be real momentum behind more aggressive controls on exports to Nazi Germany or sort of standing up for Wilsonian principles and defending poor Haim Selassie in, uh, in, in, in Ethiopia. So take us back to that moment, Nick. What were the dynamics and how did it end up playing out? The hypothetical alliance that could have emerged at this point is one that in uh, early 1935 meets at a small Italian town called Streza, and it comes to be known as the Streza Front in the international media. It's the British, the French, the Italians, and the Soviets, and they propose a plan to deprive Nazi Germany of key uh, inputs for its weapons industry, particularly uh, minerals and, and iron ore, these sorts of things. And they have a very good plan laid out. Uh, the French are particularly keen to have the Italians in, but the Soviet Union is now part of it. So they're both, also those four countries are the four permanent members of the League of Nations Council. So the equivalent to the Security Council today. So they, uh, Germany has already left, the Nazis are out, Japan is out, but the Soviet Union has joined the council. So now the four council powers potentially could just impose crippling power, uh, sanctions on Germany if it does anything like reintroduce conscription, or which it had just done, or go and take the Rhineland, uh, militarize, etc. That's one of the possibilities. But at the same time, Mussolini wants to build his empire in Africa. He's also suffering at home from crippling unemployment. He wants to put Italians to work. He wants to restore national prestige, and he needs to keep the regime going before Italians actually become too restive and potentially here's domestic trouble brewing for him. So he's still very committed to some imperial expansion. And Italy has this sore wound from being defeated in the 1890s when it tried to conquer Ethiopia. It still has Eritrea and Somalia. And Mussolini decides, I'm going to go back in and try and conquer what 
liberal Italy couldn't do in the 1890s. So he begins to arm for a war in Africa, send huge numbers of troop transports through the Suez Canal to Eritrea and Somalia to really crush Ethiopia and a pincer movement from both north and, and east. And this puts the League of Nations in a very difficult spot, and particularly Britain and France, because either they accept this blatantly imperial power grab, war of aggression against a sovereign African member state of League of Nations, uh, one of the only League of Nations member states in Africa. Either they accept that and they basically throw all principles of the League of Nations under the bus to keep the alliance against Germany going, or they say, no, you cannot do that. They stand up for the integrity of territory, defend Ethiopia's rights as a League member state, but then they lose one of the four council members and they lose a key pillar of the anti-German alliance in Central Europe. And potentially they lose control of what happens on the European continent in general because the Soviet Union is far away and then Nazi Germany and fascist Italy will rule the roost. So this is the really key dilemma that they face. And so, you know, to what extent do you think that the answer to that question was predetermined? Um, you know, you have some sort of political ar economy arguments about how the UK was worried about escalation and, and like sanctioning Germany is much more painful economically than sanctioning Italy. So do you think there are sort of contingencies here or, you know, was the world really not ready to pull the trigger in 1935? Um, it's a good question. I feel that the way that the sanctions against Italy went, you can see continuously that it's this tug of war between the imperialist camp, the people who say, buy off Mussolini, give him what he wants, which is the, the, the infamous uh, Hor Laval plan which is essentially a kind of peace deal they proposed two months into the Ethiopian war to give Italy some territory and keep a rump Ethiopian state in place. Um, you know, again, very similar to arguments you hear about the Russia-Ukrainian war today, that uh, there should be some sort of territorial settlement about this so that you could stabilize the broader picture. But uh, it's clear that Britain and France don't want to go so far with sanctions as to actually push Mussolini into war against them, which they... Are worried about it's not that they couldn't ultimately win it but it would just derail everything and mainly if they would have to put all their research into that war that would really give an opening for germany to do all sorts of uh, destabilizing and aggressive stuff elsewhere yeah it's the same reason that france didn't fight in the rhineland right it's because they just weren't ready it wasn't in the cards for them at that moment in time which is why as exciting as the Strasel hypothetical seems to me the leadership within France and the UK not wanting to roll the dice in a really serious way and raise the stakes and call Nazi Germany's bluff um, applies both to the sort of territorial aggrandizement back when you know the relative balance of power was more in the favor of the allies um, as well as these sorts of economic moves which um, were were just sort of too scary for them to to contemplate what the uh, what the eventualities might have been. Yeah, it, if I can just add one more dimension to this issue, it's also between elites and the population and public opinion, because in this moment there's a huge PR campaign by civil society organizations in Britain. It's the League of Nations Union, but it has chapters and equivalents in most other countries. A huge effort to drum up support for the League, and there's also a, an important referendum, so-called peace ballot, that shows that there are big majorities for using economic and even military sanctions among most democratic populations against uh, Germany or against any uh, breaker of the peace. So actually, it's not the case that the democracies as you know, from the, the population of most democracies was very ready to go to war. Uh, the popular fronts under under Bloom in France also has a similarly combative attitude. 
Um, and this is also because, you know, the Comintern, the left-wing parties support it. So there's also a kind of left-wing, even communist flavor to let's go to war against Germany. And this actually then feeds into why the elites in Britain and France become scared of going that way, because they do think that confrontation is then something that will tie them into a war with Germany, giving, again, communism the, uh, a free hand in Asia, where it's clearly present in China, but also giving the Soviet Union a free hand in Eastern Europe. So the way that the, the, the dice can fall here are extremely complicated, but they also have to do with elite mass dynamics, where I think it's the elites in Britain and France that are much more pro-appeasement and scared of doing this than the masses, which show themselves super pro-internationalist, pro-sanctions, uh, but actually with a lot of buy-in from the Soviet Union and left-wing parties, which then makes that suspect. Fascinating. Do you have uh, reading recommendations on this? Um, actually, one of the books that is quite good is The Spectre of War by Jonathan Haslam, which is about the interwar period through the lens of fear of communism, but also the power of these popular fronts uh, dynamics. So I think that does a pretty good job of this. So uh, Italy invades Ethiopia. Ethiopia, sort of darling of the international community, ends up getting support. But there were more aggressive things that the world could have done. First, positive sanctions to help Ethiopia, like, didn't really end up happening. And, you know, you have this option to ban uh, oil exports or close the Suez Canal, which, you know, in the historical record, Mussolini was, like, freaking out about, um, but didn't end up uh, happening. So, mm -hmm. so what was this sort of dynamic between, like, admiral versus treasury theory of sanctions imposition, and how did it play out in this context? Yeah, the, the result of that tension that we were just talking about between the imperial appeasers in London and Paris and the internationalist sanctionist camp is that they find a new form of economic pressure that they think is less severe, less likely to escalate because it's more slow acting and it works on not crucial inputs that might paralyze and shut down an economy, but it works on the other thing that the fascist regimes have very little of, which is foreign exchange reserves. So the, they uh, start to develop this, particularly in the British Treasury, which is why I call it the Treasury Theory. But the idea is that it's uh, more useful to target the ability of fascist countries to export their goods, ban them from exporting into the rest of the world market. That way you drive down their export revenue and ultimately the foreign exchange constraint is going to force this very painful trade-off between by you know using your foreign exchange for civilian imports or uh, for military inputs so that will then force them to uh, restrain themselves and and choose for peace and uh, th this is why they they think that you know ultimately fascist italy is biting off more than it could chew because ethiopia is huge most military experts think that this war will take at least one and a half years because you need at least two dry seasons in order to conquer a country the size of ethiopia and that they have a particular formula almost for the burn rate of italian foreign exchange reserves given the size of the military force the more troops go into africa the bigger the import needs are the bigger the foreign exchange spending becomes and so the, the quicker, the higher the burn rates. So they have an estimate that between nine to 15 months, Italy is going to run out of foreign exchange reserves with sanctions on Italian exports in place. And we're not going to have to do anything super provocative like close the Suez Canal, cut off oil. We're just giving them more rope to hang themselves with. And one of the British Treasury officials has this great phrase also. He says, 
we're not going to try and cripple the aggressor, but we want to make him pay through his nose. And that's kind of what they're, what they aim these sanctions at. Which ended up not being the right calculus. No, because the missing thing was again, also that they didn't put any positive means to stiffen Ethiopian resistance in place. And the war actually the first few months doesn't go as well as the Italians had hoped. It turns out Ethiopia is really big, but it loses a lot of the support that it could have internationally. And it is also actually Britain does this incredibly dumb thing of placing both belligerents under an arms embargo. So Italy can't get weapons from Britain, but neither can Ethiopia. So the, the kind of logic of supporting the victim while punishing the aggressor, only half of it is implemented and that punishment isn't that severe. And that's, I think, also one of the reasons why Italy wins and gets away with its aggression. I feel like this is a nice place to stop. Thanks for making it through part one of uh, sanctions 19th century to 1935. In part two, we are going to explore the uh, reaction function that happens uh, both uh, you know, in the wider world as well as particularly in Germany and Japan to seeing what ended up happening to Italy during the Italy-Ethiopian War. And, you know, this is China talk. We're still going to get to China, but I think the buildup for these sorts of conversations, I think is really important because the sort of second half of the 1930s, I feel like has the most contemporary relevance to the US-China mm -hmm. dynamic today with export controls and whatnot. But this one was for me, uh, <laughs> uh, just because I thought this book was so great and really wanted to get it. Uh, thank you. Every morning, that's why Jitter Sauce was born. See him shake with his trombone. Just can't leave that sauce alone. Get along, Father. You just smoke. You'll always be a Jitterbone. As Rip there with his eyes a twinkle, we named him after Rip Van Winkle. Like Rip, he'd sweep for 20 years. If he could get it, spill a beer. Rip drinks his sauce, gets on the stand. Soon forget that he's in the band. Don't awaken him, just let him mug. You'll always be a Jitterbone. All bugs out, all bugs out. Yeah, man. 
bug in the bank. Tommy Dipsomaniac.